Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join me in the middle of a quarantine, a capital that is empty but sunny. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Angus Ferguson, director of Demijohn, the world's first liquid deli. Angus, hello. Hello, Matthew. Well, I think before we get started on anything, uh, we need to clarify for the listeners what a liquid deli, in fact, is. That is a very good point. Um, well, uh, our liquid deli is, I will try and visualize, uh, I'd like to visualize a picture of it, but we have a shop full of the most delicious handmade British uh, food and drink, mm. all of liquid. And um, we decant them from lovely big glass demijohn containers, uh, which can be up to about 25 liters in size. Um, and customers are encouraged to have a little try of things, and they range from uh, beautiful um, bramble scotch whiskey liqueurs uh, made by retired PE teachers outside Edinburgh to uh, lovely oils and vinegars. Um, and uh, I particularly like my olive oils and fruit vinegars uh, for dressing salads and things like that. Um, the customer then gets to choose a bottle, uh, ranging from small to large, uh, some rather beautiful Italian glass bottles, and um, we fill it up in the shop. And the best bit about it all is that yeah, we're a very eco-friendly business, so not only do we have super uh, high-quality um, quirky products, but we can allow the customer to come back with our their demijohn bottle to refill it again and again, and um, and thereby reusing uh, that bottle. So it's, it's a fascinating um, concept. Yeah. So that's in a nutshell that that's the liquid deli, and um, uh, I mean our products are, you know, we we spend. Um, many hours and days to uh, to try and choose these things, um, and we have what I would describe as the underworld of small production making for us. And um, I inferred there that you know we have some quirky people like retired D teachers making our things at Edinburgh. Well, they are very typical of the the types of um, small business people that we go to, mm. to to help us make our products. Now. Of course, uh, the subject is bound to come up. How has COVID-19 affected your business? Um, it's been a pretty torrid and uh, horrible time, really. Um, and we're still reeling uh, just uh, two weeks on, really, from the, the sort of seismic shift of uh, the, the, the start of the lockdown period. But um, you could feel it uh, really swelling with impact um, all the way from roughly middle of February uh, and it gathered pace to the point where um, the shutters really started coming down at the beginning of March. So we're, we're here maybe four weeks after the worst impact has happened in the sense that um, for us, <clears throat> being a retailer, um, you rely on free access by the general public uh, to your your shop premises and um, 
if the general public do not feel safe and secure, mm. um, as in the case of COVID-19, uh, where it became very clear that actually mixing with others was not such a good idea at all, um, then um, people stay away. And actually, it has been increasingly hard over the last few years to encourage someone to walk through one shop, premises, front door, and actually uh, come into a premises, um, let alone actually then go on to purchase something. So um, overlap that with uh, with COVID-19, and you can see you have a, a really ghastly situation. And, um, and then the final, I suppose that the final uh, um, issue is the, the government's decision to to completely restrict access to certain types of business. Um, and uh, on the 23rd of March at 8 o'clock, that's when <coughs> the general public were, shops like ours were, were ordered to close. Um, there is one, one slight reprieve in the sense that we are still allowed to uh, trade as an online business. Mm-hmm. And um, fortunately for us, we actually had a good online business um, that was already effective and operating. And um, we had concentrated our effort already down to our York store, uh, which is in Museum Street, a very nice part of York. And um, um, But overnight, effectively, two-thirds of our business turnover was wiped out, um, just with a, a sort of stroke of a pen, as it were. And... Um, uh, we've been left with a situation where we've had to reorganise very quickly uh, the business to um, to allow us to continue operating in some way. And my um, so it's been it's been enormously stressful, um, an enormous amount of administration and. Um, uh, and that sort of background work just to be able to produce mm. a small amount of sales. And um, and that's where the, the stresses and strains have been. I mean, some of the, the pressures have been from the fact that um, you may have the potential to run a business, but, um, and I've always said this, that a business is made really by its staff. Um, and... Uh, if you your staff are unable or unwilling to to continue working with that business, um, and then then actually the business cannot function. And I think for a lot of other businesses, um, they have found that probably the the most significant issue in the sense that um, the uh, all members of the staff, all members of the public, were feeling conscious and worried about their own health and uh, what the effect of this unknown virus was going to have on them. And um, um, and one can't force a, 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 an employee to, to work for you in these kind of situations. We've been very fortunate. We've, we've had a, a real coming together of, uh, of sort of staff who, who really wanted to help. And um, we were, um, we've been very fortunate that our actual sort of Senior manager uh, who runs that side of the business, um, he was uh, very much able to get to work um, by walking there, not using public transport, um, and could actually could continue to operate the business from within uh, a closed shop premises, and um, 
and in effect be isolated with what he was doing mm. to, to and and was willing to do that more importantly which was uh, a remarkable thing um and then supported by some of the other staff part time who were also able to get to to work uh, easily um we have had to follow one member of our full-time staff because we just could not effectively work out a way of uh, allowing her to get to the premises, the business premises. Um, she was having to come in using public transport, and um, that's been a, a, a really quite a major issue um, for anyone with underlying health issues that, or, or those that were concerned uh, about. Um, being affected and then taking it back to uh, their own home. And in her case, um, she was very worried about her parents and the fact that might have, and that actually immediately put her at, um, at very high risk of uh, causing um, sort of secondary infection to others. So um, it's, been, it's been something of a challenge. It, is, and it, then, it has and been a challenge it, across business, hasn't it? Um, yes, ab- absolutely. And, and, and it, gets, it gets more interesting now because uh we you have a situation where even if you've managed to resolve and unpick and repack all all of your business so that some bits of it are functioning um certain as as the sort of tide is is moving continually um new factors are are, are coming into play so it is changing on a daily basis so for instance for an online business uh, mail order business like ours that we're able to run at the moment uh, we um, we have this issue that we you suddenly become reliant on certain services that are crucial to make that business work. Of course, the courier network is one of them. And um, so, I suppose our, our our greatest fear at the moment is that um, the courier network may, in the next two weeks, uh, become um, so stretched with their own issues. That they cease to become mm. effective, and that so I mean it is it is a truly extraordinary puzzle, um, and and one that is uh, it it has come up from virtually seemingly nowhere uh, within the space of a few weeks. It will be interesting to see how businesses and government are able to cope with this in the long term. Now, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, what does the next 12 months have in store for Demijohn? Well, um, I'm a, I am the eternal optimist, as, uh, um, and I think that probably does uh, make me sort of suitable as a, a kind of entrepreneur. But I, I look at the situation that we're in now, I see that we have a good business running through our website, damageon.co.uk, and I see that we could grow and develop that uh, that facility, the, the online facility, our ability to mail order uh, internationally. And, um, and basically, when we come back to normal, at whatever point that is, we will have a much stronger piece of business if we can just survive so that when we can open that shop door again, we could potentially be in a better situation than we were even when we were entering uh, entering the whole sort of COVID-19 issue uh, in mid to late February. So um, from my sort of very optimistic head, <clears throat> I see that there are some opportunities falling out of here that um, 
the global reach of, of mail order is phenomenal. Uh, and if we are clever with how we, we quickly redevelop now <clears throat> and make the most of that, then um, that could be that could be a tremendous tremendous thing. Um, there is one other nasty point, which is that of course um, there will be winners and losers from this. And if we stay alive as a business long enough, uh, we may lose some of our our competition, and that actually will give us another sort of boosted opportunity when we come out of this, especially if the customer market is very willing um, to come out and spend having been sort of locked away for a period. Mm. And we saw this in the foot of mouth sort of, uh, after the foot of mouth type um, scenario where people had been, you know, forced to stay still for a while. And actually what they really want to do, we all want to do as humans, and I think, is to socialize and, and have some fun. So, um Fingers crossed, Matthew. I am. I am the optimist. I we're determined to uh, to succeed this uh, with this and get through it. And um, and we're just hoping that you know, with the various bits of government support, uh, with a, uh, some tremendous staff, hard work, and some some damn good luck, uh, we might just make it. Well, Angus, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the show today, and I do hope that we can have you back under better circumstances. Angus, thank you. Not at all. Thank you, Matthew. That was Angus Ferguson, director of Demijohn. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me who realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think 
you, re- you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and uh, a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and of course a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager obviously like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence. Um, me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, uh, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure. When you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team 
it is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you. And you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organization, one thing I have learned, and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising they were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before I was I was playing. And I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But uh, in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, Jeff, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we have some great players, but 
overall, they were great, hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and say, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It's too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want you got time? I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to come up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh that If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see this happened when you must have realized that people teammates began looking at you for leadership um is that something that occurred to you or did you just realize that by by quick one way or the other people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration well possibly that's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now quite frankly that's a new a new question mm. does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, 
I'm not, I think probably yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. Some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone, how they, they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing. Astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and, and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? 
Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody, and I've been going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good, good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on with, all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. It, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't, and, when, it, when you put those, those questions and how you categorize those, I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the, the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts, but with it. Yes, the word, the, word is team. The, word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. You know, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, Jeff, uh, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, wait, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's. You're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries. Members of staff... 
all the guests, or any other person therein associated.